Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 392 with Austin Belsack. Austin is sharing an unconventional approach that is a lot more valuable and skill building and fun and ultimately effective when it comes to snagging the job you're after. So you'll learn one, two common themes of successful job searches, two, how to do cold outreach that gets responses, and three, two ways to effectively illustrate your value. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, you'll find it on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F392. Now, here's Austin's story. Austin is the founder of Cultivated Culture, where he teaches people how to land jobs they love without connections, without traditional experience, and without applying online. Austin's created a community of over 30,000 job seekers who have leveraged his strategies to land jobs at places like Google, Microsoft, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, and more. So thanks to Austin for sharing his time with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. It's a trying time that challenges all of our basic assumptions. However... One thing that brings us all together is our common humanity. Now more than ever, teams must come together and work together to solve big challenges. And Trello is here to help. Trello, part of Atlassian's collaborative suite, is an app with an easy-to-understand visual format plus tons of features that make working with your team functional and just plain fun. Teams of all shapes and sizes and companies like Google, Fender, and even Costco all use Trello to collaborate and get work done. With Trello, you can work with your team wherever you are, whether it's at home or in an office. No matter what device you're using, computer, tablet, or phone, Trello syncs across all of them, so you can stay up to date on all the things your team cares about. Keep your workflow going from wherever you are with Trello. Try Trello for free and learn more at Trello.com. That's T-R-E-L-L-O.com. Trello.com. Here is Austin. Austin, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Pete, I am so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, I think we're going to have a lot of fun. And you talk a lot about the career hunt and how it's done better. But you've got a pretty dramatic story yourself of, of coming from a, a pretty miserable place, it sounds like, in your career to a much better one. Could you tell us the tale? Yeah, absolutely. And just to give some people context around uh, where we're at now before we rewind I work full-time at Microsoft, and I work in sales there on the advertising side of our business in New York City. But on the side of that full-time job, I run a site called cultivatedculture.com, where I basically teach people to leverage some unconventional strategies to land jobs they love without traditional experience, without prior connections, and without applying online. So I started that about three years ago, and since then, we've grown the community to, um, there's about 12,000 people in it now. About 30,000 people have come through the doors total, and many of them have gone on to land jobs at places like Google and Microsoft and Facebook, Apple, Amazon, and many, many other industries as well. So that's basically where I am now, but to your point, uh, it has not always been that way. So if we rewind the clock back to high school for me, which was now... uh, more, more years ago than I'd like to admit, I was dead set on being a doctor. So I had taken all these classes in high school and biology really resonated with me and, and chemistry did as well. And so I thought, you know, this would be cool and doctors make a lot of money and they're well regarded in society and, you know, mom and dad would be happy. So 
I set my sights on that and I kind of tailored my whole strategy around getting into a college with a good pre-med track. So I sort of made that happen. I ended up at Wake Forest University, which given the grades that I had and their programs, that was a good fit for me. Uh, but I'd gone to boarding school for high school and boarding school was awesome. It was a great experience, but it was a bit sheltered in the fact that while we we had some freedoms on campus, there wasn't that same level of exposure that you may get at like a regular day high school where you have to drive there and you can go to people's houses on the weekends and things like that. So I, I got to Wake Forest and um, this social scene was, uh, I guess we could say much more robust than it was mm. in boarding school. We're talking about <laughs> that robust social scene makes me imagine you doing keg stands. I don't know if that's what you mean by that, but that's exactly what I mean by that, Pete. That's exactly what happened. So the, the first the first night, literally, we moved into the dorms. And the first night, I remember walking out with my new roommate and a couple of guys we'd met that day. And uh, this car pulls up in front of us. And they're like, hey, you, you want to go to a party? And that like alarm bell is going off in your head. And your mom's like, Austin, don't talk to strangers. Mm-hmm. Don't get into weird cars. And we're like, nah, that's, that's fine. And then we look behind him. And there's just this whole line of cars. And the next guy pulls up and says, you want to go to a party? And we're like, is this a thing? And they're like, oh, yeah, this is this is what happened. So so basically, these cars pull up, you you hop in one, and they take you to a party. And that was kind of the beginning of the end of my medical career as far as being a doctor goes. So because you were just partying so much, you you weren't focusing on the grades or, or what sure. happened exactly at this party? Pretty much all these freedoms that you never had at home are suddenly available. And so that was way more interesting to me than class was. So I immediately failed chemistry my my first semester, and then I went ahead and failed French the next semester. I rounded out my my freshman year with like a uh, a one nine nine GPA, which is not great. Um, I don't know too many med schools these days that are accepting kids with that sort of GPA. So my dreams were kind of shattered. I wasn't too upset about it, but I kind of had this choice. I could continue to explore and try and find a new passion or I could continue enjoying this new social scene that was that was exciting and fun. And so I I decided to do that. And um, basically that carried me through. I I kept my biology major and uh, that carried me through to junior year when my roommate's dad, who is an orthopedic surgeon, he kind of plopped in an internship in my lap with a medical device sales company. So they were a subsidiary of Johnson and Johnson. And so I worked there during the summer and they gave me a job offer at the end of the summer. They said, you know, it's yours if you want it. And I thought that was awesome because that meant that I could totally slack off senior year and, and I had my job and I was good to go. So that's exactly what I did. I, I didn't apply anywhere else. I didn't interview anywhere else. Then I graduated from college and I kind of got slapped in the face. So I hadn't taken into account anything like cost of living. So I racked up about 10,000 bucks worth of credit card debt in the first three months out of college, literally just trying to make ends meet. And then my boss was was just terrible. And then finally, the job itself, I was getting up some days at 2.33 in the morning to drive two and a half hours to get to the hospital by 6 a.m. And that really was not super fun. And so one day my boss told me, you know, in a very condescending fashion, maybe you should maybe you should think about another career. And I actually said, you know what, that that's pretty good advice at this point. So I assumed that going to a four year undergraduate college and getting a degree would at least get me my foot in the door somewhere. Um, it would give me a chance. You know, why else did I pay all this money for this this degree? So I, I set my sights on technology. So I set my sights on one of these leading tech companies and I applied to them. 
And um, I got rejected pretty quickly. So I figured I need to go get some advice. Uh, so I stopped by my career counselor's office at Wake Forest. Um, I talked to my parents. I talked to my friends who had landed jobs. And I kind of tried to consolidate all their advice. And the common theme was that I should basically find jobs online, tweak my resume for them, personalize my resume and my cover letter, uh, apply for them, and then kind of cross my fingers and hope that somebody got back to me. And if nobody got back to me, then then the next step was to basically rinse and repeat until somebody did. Um, I was told pretty frequently that it was a numbers game. So the more the more stuff I threw up against the wall, the better chance I had of something sticking and landing that job offer. So I, I continued down that path. I took a step back and I started applying to companies um, in like the mid-tier startup range and didn't hear anything from them. So I started with early stage startups and didn't hear anything from them. And then I was applying to companies that just had the word tech somewhere on their site. (laughs) And I still didn't hear anything from them. And at this point, I was really frustrated because I was doing everything I was supposed to do. You know, I just had gotten this quarter of a million dollar education that's supposed to, to get me a job. That's what the whole point of it, right? And here I was with nothing and I was incredibly, incredibly angry, but I didn't know what else to do. About that same time, I was reaching out to some alumni at Wake and somebody uh, I had a conversation with basically gave me a, a, a light bulb moment. They told me that I was taking advice from the wrong people. And I thought that was crazy because Throughout our lives, when we grow up, the people that we look to for advice are our parents and our friends and our teachers and the people that we look up to. And so I was I was like, I don't understand what what exactly do you mean? And he said, you should only be taking advice from the people who already have what you want. And that really resonated with me because while my parents were successful in their own right and my friends had been successful out of college in their own right, none of them had come out with a terrible GPA and a biology degree and a job in medicine with three months of professional experience. And now I had aspirations to work at Microsoft or Google. I realized that I needed to go out and find people who had done that and had done it successfully and quickly and who are around my age. And so I, I immediately drove home and I wrote down criteria for my job search or my dream job rather. And those were, there were four criteria. The first was to be working at a leading company like a Google or a Microsoft or a Facebook, to be making over $100,000 a year, to be uh, working in a major city like a New York, a San Francisco, and LA, and finally to be doing that all before the age of 26, because I didn't want to wait until I was 40 for all of this to come to, come to fruition. So I took my list my, of my criteria, and I, I went out on LinkedIn, and I found people who matched that criteria as best as I possibly could. So I tried to find these young folks who were working at those amazing companies. Um, I looked at their salaries on Glassdoor to make sure that they were in the range. And then I just started reaching out cold. And I probably reached out to about 50 or 60 people. And roughly 10 to 15 got back to me. And I started That's having conversations. Yeah, it was, a, it was a, I was very, very surprised, especially for the first pass. And I think it was more beginner's luck than anything, because um, when I started my full outreach for the job search later on, uh, the ratio was not so good. And I had to I had to do a little bit of uh, learning to improve that. But uh, for whatever reason, it, it seemed to work out. And so I had conversations with these people and I tried to learn as much as I could about their stories and the 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 strategies that they used and how they approached this job search. And there were a couple of common themes. The first was that 
all of them had gotten in via a referral of some kind, which is really interesting to me. And the second was that they all found creative ways to illustrate their value. They stepped outside of the box, the traditional box of a resume and a cover letter and some interview answers to illustrate their value. And that was also really interesting to me. I took what I learned and I did a bunch of research and I basically made it my mission to turn the hiring process into a game and try to figure out how I could create some shortcuts. And so a lot of my time was spent learning how to build relationships with people I'd never met before, finding ways to understand the challenges they were facing, the challenges their companies were facing, uh, new initiatives and projects that they were releasing, basically any way that I could add value. And then I would go back and I would research those problems and I would come up with creative ways to highlight what I brought to the table and the tangible value that I offered if they took a chance on me. And so I basically spun those up uh, over the next couple of years to land offers at Microsoft and Google and Twitter and a whole bunch of other places. And um, the rest is history. So here I am. But after I started working at Microsoft, I had a bunch of people from, from Wake Forest reach out to me and they were like, aren't you the kid who graduated with like a two five GPA, like how the how the heck are you working at Microsoft? And when the 20th person asked me that, I thought, you know, I'm having the same conversation with all these people. Maybe I could find a way to write this down in a scalable fashion. So I started up my site. I came up with my my name uh, like pretty off the cuff. I really just wanted to get this blog post out there. I wrote it all up. I, I did some promotion and it got an incredibly positive response from friends and family, but also from strangers on the internet. Um, and that's really how this whole thing started. And now we've been going strong for about three years. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd love to dig into the particulars on these tactics. So the the creative ways of, of demonstrating your value and, and acquiring these referrals. So how'd you do it? And how have you seen other people do it successfully? Definitely. The overarching theme here is find people who can have the biggest impact on the hiring decision for the role that you want, number one. Number two is to build a relationship with them, um, regardless of whether you've met them or not. I, I was talking to somebody earlier on the phone today, and she was like, you mean reach out to total strangers? And I was like, yeah, we got we to gotta reach out to total strangers. So it's coming over the, uh, overcoming that barrier as well. And then finally, those creative ways to illustrate your value. So if we start with the first piece there, when we talk about locating or identifying people who can have the biggest hiring or biggest impact on the hiring decision, it really comes down to somebody who would be your manager if you got hired or would be your colleague sitting at the desk next to you. I think a lot of people feel like reaching out to recruiters is something that is really important and needs to be done. But I personally don't recommend it. Recruiters, there's no, no, knock against recruiters because what they do is really important, but they are inundated with emails and it is so hard to stand out. And even if you do get the opportunity to stand out and they reply to you, their influence ends when they refer you in for an interview. They're not going to be able to advocate for you through the hiring process and they're not going to be in the room where the hiring decision is made. But if you get in touch with somebody who would be sitting at the desk next to you on your team or would be your manager, they can also refer you in, but then they can also kind of be your champion internally and coach you through the, the interview process. And they can advocate for you in the room where the actual hiring decision is being made. 
And that is so critical. But on top of that, they're not getting bombarded with emails from potential candidates. So it's also a lot easier to get in touch with them using the right outreach strategies. So that's the first step is kind of getting yourself in the mindset of who to reach out to, why, and then we have to go out and find them. Well, and can you tell me in terms of the who, I guess, how do you know that the person on, from the outside looking in, that the person you're reaching out to would in fact be your manager or your, your colleague in the desk next to you? I suppose in, in some ways, if they have pretty specific titles, you could be like, oh yes, that is, that's dead on. But other times the title might be something, I think at Microsoft, uh, thousands of people might have the, the same title <laughs> in terms of, of what they're doing. So how do you, you get clear on these would be the, the nine people that uh, would be the influencers on, on what I'm really after? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head, Pete. You're never going to be able to, I mean, that's not true. Never say never. You may get a tip on who the hiring manager is, and that's great. But, you know, in the the majority of cases, you're not going to be able to pinpoint the exact hiring manager. The best thing that you can do is take an educated guess. And that's exactly what you mentioned. So let's say I want a job at Microsoft in New York as an account manager. I can go look up all the account managers that currently work at Microsoft in New York, and that's probably going to be my my best target base. Now, I do know that if I reach out to all of them, that I will hit somebody who will be on the team I'm being hired for because I reach out to literally everybody. So that's one way to cover it. And I also recommend reaching out to as many people as you can. A lot of people ask me, you know, is it weird if I reach out to multiple people at the same company? What if they start talking about me? What if, you know, my name gets out there? Is that going to hurt my chances? And at the end of the day, no, that's not what I've seen. My background is in sales and I'm in sales now. And there's there's a nice um, little anecdote that salespeople like to throw around where a lot of the deals get done or, or big steps or breakthroughs happen on the seventh touch point. Um, and so it's it's really about that familiarity. You kind of have to get, the more that you get in front of somebody rather, the more familiar you become and the more likely they are to then take that action. Well, and I'm thinking in a way, you know, I imagine if they do talk about you and then it's conceivably possible that they'd say, oh my gosh, why is this guy wasting our time? And I already gave him the answers. And so he's talking to three other people who, who give him the same answers. But I, but I think it might be more likely that the response is, whoa, uh, we almost never see candidates who are so committed <laughs> as to go to this length to, to get in. That's interesting. We should take a closer look at this guy. A hundred percent. And that is the majority of the times that I've gone through this. And when I've coached people and gotten feedback and even talked to hiring managers themselves, that is the exact feedback we've gotten. People are typically, they, they typically see that as a sign of persistence and a sign of enthusiasm and motivation and a differentiator from all these other candidates who are just relying on the, the baseline or the minimum required to kind of get their foot in the door. But on top of that, some of the other tactics we're going to talk about in a second here are going to make it so that even if there was a doubt, even if they are kind of around the water cooler and there's like, they're like, who's this Pete person? You know, his name's come up. I don't know. He's it's kind of weird. He's reaching out to all of us. <laughs> the next step, weird. <laughs> <laughs> the next step is, is going to wipe that off the table, which is once you're able to, so this is kind of twofold. When we think about creating something valuable for 
that illustrates our value and it is compelling to the person. There's two ways to get it. We can either get it from the contacts themselves or we can get it through our own research. So one of the most important things you can do is put in as much time researching this company as you possibly can. And if you do that ahead of time, if you do that before you reach out to people, you're going to be that much more prepared when you are reaching out. You're going to have better outreach. But also, a lot of times, somebody will, you, you, people will be surprised. If you've never done cold outreach before, you never know when somebody's going to hit you back up and say, hey, I have time in two hours. Can we talk then? And then the fear and the stress set in if you're not prepared and you scramble to think of questions and you don't know what to talk to them about. But if you spent this time researching the company and you understand the challenges they're facing, how they're addressing them, the wins that they've had, what's their current status on X, Y, and Z projects or X, Y, and Z brands, then you come to the table with that much more ammunition to start and drive the conversation. So doing some of this research ahead of time is, is really, really powerful, but it also allows you to come up with some value add angles ahead of time. And then you can either Basically, the conversations that you have, you can flesh those out. You can kind of validate them. So you can you can tease them out with questions or posing different ideas or statements that relate to the thing you've come up with, and you can gauge the response. And if the person on the other side says, you know, that's actually something that we're working on, then great. You, you kind of have something to work off of, but they're like, oh, yeah, we tried that. It was terrible. Totally failed. Then you know that you, you kind of need to pivot. Getting that research in ahead of time is really, really critical. And when we're talking about public companies, they, they tend to be a little bit easier to research than private companies. But just two of my favorite ways to kind of understand where things are going at a high level for those companies are one, to listen to their earnings calls. So every publicly traded company out there, every quarter they have an earnings call and they'll share it publicly. So if you just type in the company name and investor relations on Google, you, that page should pop up and they should have the most recent webcast. And so basically what they do is the, the calls are typically about anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour long. And, you know, if you're pressed for time, you can always you can kind of find the MP3 and download it and then speed it up in iTunes 2X and save yourself some minutes. But basically what they talk about is it's their presentation to the shareholders as to why the company is in the current state that it is and what they're doing to make it better. So if there's a challenge, they're going to address it. If there's a win, they're going to call it out. And then they're going to talk about the future. What are we doing to capitalize on the momentum of the win? How are we thinking about addressing or fixing the challenge that we saw, which caused numbers to drop? So that that's a great way to get a high-level overview of what happened recently and what the company is driving towards in the future. Then I like to go to a site called SeekingAlpha.com, which is basically... Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's a financial blog where all these analysts kind of come together and they write pieces on different companies. So you can go in and you can punch in the stock ticker for a company. And there's two columns. There's an, a news column, which is basically your objective stuff like, you know, the Dow dropped 460 points today. This stock was impacted X amount. Very objective. But on the other side, there's analysis, which is where those analysts come in and they basically give their opinion. And it's really helpful because you can pretty much find five different angles on the same topic. So somebody will tell you why Facebook's handling of private data is going to be the demise of their company. And then the next article is how some guy is talking about Facebook's handling of private data 
is going to help them learn and help all of us learn, and it's going to cause their stock to skyrocket in the future. And regardless of which position you agree with, you get a sense of all the different angles that you could potentially approach this subject from. And that is going to give you a lot of ammunition to have these conversations, but also come up with unique ways to add value. I was just talking to one of the people that I coach. He was looking for a job at Apple, and he, he couldn't think of a way to add value. So we went on the site and the third article down was here's six things Apple aren't, isn't doing right now that could be making them millions of dollars. And they literally listed out six things and they had specific arguments for their ideas. And so we, we grabbed a couple of them and we threw them in the deck and, and put his spin on them and, and leveraged that as our, our value add project. Now that, that's interesting when you say throw them in the deck and value add project. Can we talk about, you know, when in the course of, of this relationship building, do you trot that out? Because I, I, my hunch is it might be a little different to, to you, you say, hey, I'd love to chat with you about X, Y, and Z. They go, oh, yeah, sure. I've got 15 minutes to chat in two hours. You say, great. And then uh, you're on the phone is like, please open up to slide three. <laughs> how, how do you kind of time and sequence that? Yeah, most definitely. So it, it actually... The best answer that I can give is that it depends on the situation. So if you're reaching out and you can't even get anybody on on the phone and you can't even get any replies, then you may need to trot it out at that point to add it, the, the, enough value to get a response, to trigger a response from somebody. But let's say that you are getting replies, things are working well, um, you're getting people to set up meetings with you. Typically, what I like to do is have a few meetings first. So I like to, as soon as I start outreach, I want to have a general idea of the type of value that I could potentially add. And my hope is that the conversation that I, I have with this person is going to, one, validate my idea in some fashion, maybe give me some pieces of the greater picture or puzzle that I can then bake into the, the project itself. Um, and then I like to have a couple of these questions so I get all these different perspectives or a couple of these conversations. And then once I've had a few of those, I'm sort of in this place where I've talked to the first round of people and I'm teed up for the second round of people. And then I like to approach it by following up. I, I like to use the value validation project as a, as a means to follow up and drive the relationship with the people I've had conversations with. So let's say, Pete, I, I reach out to you and we had a conversation. I'm going to go back and finish my, my project. And then I'm going to send you an email. I'm going to say, Pete, thank you so much for taking 30 minutes to chat with me last week. You know, I, I really enjoyed our conversation, especially the piece around this challenge that you're having about getting more new customers. And I've actually done some thinking about it. And I put together a few ideas around how I think that you guys could leverage your existing audience to drive more customers through referrals. I've attached that here. Would love to get your thoughts. Email is fine. But if you have time for another call, great. And then I'll, I'll email that off to them. And basically what that does is one, it allows me to follow up the first time. It provides value that showcases my skills, my experience, what I bring to the table. But it also opens up the door for a second follow up, because if that person doesn't reply, I can email them again and say, hey, did you get what I sent? But if they do reply, then the conversation is going. So now maybe they give me feedback over email and now we're going back and forth and they're, they're getting more invested in me with each email and with each suggestion or better yet, we get on the phone 
and we we build more of that personal rapport. We're talking instead of typing, and maybe it's even face to face in person. But we're kind of building that relationship, and I'm um, adding value that directly relates to that person's team, that person's company, a role that's open. So that's typically when I like to to trot it out. Usually about five business days or so after we had the the call, and then when it comes time to interview. I usually like to bring it with me uh, into the interview, and then we'll have the interview as planned. And then at the very end, when the interviewer is like, "All right, um, you know, thanks so much for stopping by. Is there anything else?" Uh, I'll usually say, "Yeah, there's one more thing. You know, I talked to a few people at the company here on your team, and they told me that your biggest challenge is X, or you have this new initiative coming up called Y." And I put together some thoughts around that, and then I'll I'll slide it across the table to them, and I'll just say. No need to look at it right now. Um, I know you're really busy. I appreciate the time, but if you do have a minute to look at it over the next day or two, please do. Definitely let me know if you have feedback. And uh, thanks so much. And then again, that opens the door for you to follow up with your interviewer, which a lot of people struggle with that. And following up is key to make sure that the you're staying top of mind and that they are driving the interview process and the hiring process on their end. So those are kind of the two times that I like to to bring it out and leverage it most. And then I think that's a good segue into like, what exactly does that, that project look like? Oh, well, yeah. And this reminds me, I think Rabit Sethi calls this the briefcase technique mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, there's a, a very kind of a dramatic moment. It's like, what? what? <laughs> Nobody else has ever extracted a, a document and handed it to me. What, what, what's going on here? Oh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and they, they all use of, that voice too. It's great. I, love I, it. I don't know if love they're, they're saying if they do this out loud, but they're, they're thinking it to themselves, hopefully. Uh, because it's uh, it, it just a hugely a uh, huge differentiator, and I mean, I guess um, I guess a, a real key is that you in, in those conversations you've done a good job of of zeroing in on uh, yes, this is their biggest challenge, and, and yes, th- these are some ideas that might be be workable, and and you're also kind of getting some useful feedback in terms of. Uh, oh no, they really hate uh, podcast advertising. I don't know. But nobody <laughs> hates podcast advertising. It's so effective. It had been Speaking proven of. many times. But uh, you know, for, for example, if they're trying to acquire new customers and you've got these ideas and you're having conversations and they say, oh no, they um, are totally against this because I don't know, it's not measurable or uh, it, it's very visual, whatever their, their excuses. Like, okay, like, well, now you know. So y- you've got something that is sort of new and, and distinctive and feels innovative, like you're smart, but also not just sort of like way crazy out there or or disgusting to them for whatever reason or bias they have against them. So you're, you've sort of fine-tuned something that's that's pretty excellent by the time you're in the interview. So, so that, that's that's cool and it's exciting. And and I, I imagine just about nobody does this because it's it's too much effort. <laughs> and, and they don't want to risk it when when there's no guarantee but on the on the flip side i mean if you think about the time you spend blasting applications to hundreds or thousands of of opportunities it's probably more time effective than the alternative most definitely and so i'm i'm actually going back a, a few minutes here i i'm really glad you brought up remit because that's actually where this idea kind of came from i watched that briefcase technique video and one of the ways that i built the experience to be able to even be considered for some of these roles at, at Microsoft and Google was starting at my own freelance consulting firm for digital marketing. 
And the briefcase technique was something that I used to, to land clients. And so when I started applying for some of these jobs, I thought, you know, why not do something similar for these companies? So that's, that's exactly what it was born out of. But I'm, I'm also really glad that you brought up the point of it taking a lot of effort. And uh, so two, two objections I typically get are that it takes a lot of effort. And what if a company just takes my, my work and runs with it? And I totally understand where people are coming from with both of those. But first, for the for the it takes a lot of work piece. It definitely does. But to your point, how much work are you spending applying online every day? And is that making you happy? And also, is it bettering you? Yeah, exactly. You're learning a ton as you do this. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's not applicable for, for Microsoft. But hey, Adobe is dealing with similar stuff. Absolutely. And, and it even goes beyond that. So there's there aren't too many transferable skills from applying online. But if you train your brain to get into this mode of consuming information with a lens of identifying problems and coming up with solutions quickly, that's a pretty valuable skill to have anywhere in your career, whether you are job searching, whether you are trying to increase revenue or drive against goals that your boss gave you or come up with ideas to make a case for a promotion or a raise or starting your own company or, or business and pitching people, no matter what you're doing business-wise, having a mindset of, of knowing where to find the right information, knowing how to tease out problems, that's really, really valuable. And so this is kind of the first step there. So it definitely does take work, but you're going to be that much better for it as a professional and as a person. Um, and that's something I've seen direct benefits from even starting starting the business here and within my my career at Microsoft. And then the second objection is always, you know, what if the company steals my work and runs with it? And um, I, I get what people are saying. You know, I, there's something that I've heard from a lot of people who advocate for the traditional job search and traditional business practices, which is basically, you know, if you're good at something, you should never do it for free. And I think that that's changed in our world today because it's so competitive, whether you're starting a business or, or searching for a job, there's so much competition out there. And if you're willing to go the extra mile, a lot of people are still abiding by that methodology of not giving any, anything away for free. And they're the ones who are going to lose out. And if you really think about it, sure, you're putting in a lot of time, but if you, how much is a new job worth? You know, when I got my job at Microsoft, I got a $60,000 raise. That's by no means the norm. But the job before that, I got a $20,000 raise. So let's call that closer to even. Maybe I think I spent probably maybe 20 hours coming up with a value validation project for them and doing some research and putting it all together and then presenting it. So if I think about it from that lens, I basically got paid a thousand bucks an hour to come up with that project. And I, I'll, I'll take that hourly rate any day. Oh, that's, sure. that's awesome. So I, people, when people are worried about putting in the work um, and also companies stealing their work, I think you need to think of it more as a long-term strategy, a long-term investment. If a company is going to steal your ideas and just run with it, that's a great litmus test for whether or not that's a company you want to work for. Well, yeah. And if they steal your idea and you, and you learn about that in the future, you just that goes on your resume. <laughs> yes. Like, yeah, absolutely. You know, the book, and uh, you have the proof, right? You can show when, when they executed yeah. <laughs> it and when you, when you came up with it and, and sent it to them. Yeah, it goes on your resume. They did almost all the work. Yeah, I love <laughs> it. I, I haven't used that one yet. 3,000 hours worth. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's awesome. And that's basically like it, it's a, it's a short sighted business strategy. So 
all the great companies that I know, they want to invest in people who are going to bring great ideas to the table every day. And they're going to constantly be innovating and thinking of new ways to solve problems and be willing to roll up their sleeves. And on top of that, if I have an idea and I give you the framework, you're probably not going to execute it the same way that I had in mind. Whether or not it's better or worse is is up in the air. But if I'm a company, I don't want to just take this one idea. I want to invest in the person who is willing to roll up their sleeves and work hard enough without even being employed at my company to come up with an idea like this. Because I know that once I bring them into the fold and give them all the inside information and the resources and, and all of that, they're going to 10x those ideas and they're going to they're going to be so, so impactful to the business. So if a company does steal your ideas, to me, that's that's a company that I don't want to work for. I mean, imagine imagine what happens when you get when they're paying you and now that your manager's stealing all of your ideas the same way that they did when you applied for the job. I mean, that's just a situation that you don't want to be in. And the great companies out there recognize that the person who's coming up with the ideas is far more valuable than the specific idea itself. And then finally, on that topic, how badly do you want the job? So if you're worried about a company stealing your project, just think about what you're doing now. And is it working? Because if it's not, if you're applying online, or if you're trying to network and you're doing this stuff and it's just not working, you need to try something else. If you're so worried about a company stealing your project, but what you're doing right now isn't working. Something has to give one way or the other. And I'd much rather put in some time bettering myself, like honing my analytical thinking, my problem solving skills to come up with this idea that even if the company takes it and runs with it, like you said, Pete, you can take the credit for it. You can put it on your resume, but you can also take that knowledge and the skills that you learned from going through that process and you can move on to the next company. So that's how I typically handle both of those objections with people. but. I'm happy to also give examples of specific projects that people have, have put together. If, well, yeah, if you think I'd like to hear examples of the projects and, and sort of like the, the deliverable. It sounds like you're, you're working with the PowerPoint slides and um, kind of what, what makes it great. And is there a kind of a rough range of slides? And, and, and what is the, is the stuff that, that really makes you seem brilliant as opposed to like, yeah, okay, you Googled something. Press. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so right off the bat, I'd say that this is all about getting creative and focusing in on two things. One, what is valuable to the company? So what do they care about? And then also what medium will help you best get that value across? So I mentioned PowerPoint decks because that's what was easiest for me and that's what was natural for me. But I know there are a lot of people out there who are into video, or maybe they're developers and they know how to code things and build things. Uh, there are so many different mediums that you can get the value across with that anything that you can do to stand out is great. And anything that you feel comfortable with is also great. So a lot of people aren't writers out there, but maybe they're videographers. A video is great. But if you are more of a writer than a videographer, a blog post is great. Again, whatever you feel comfortable with. So just to give a few examples, there are a couple that I really like. So the first one is um, from a student named Cam. Uh, she was at Northeastern and she wanted a job at Airbnb. So she had applied online and didn't hear anything. And she reached out to a bunch of the people who worked there. And she also didn't hear anything from her outreach. So we, we got to talking and I was like, what do you want to do? Do you want to try and come up with something else? Do you want to move on? And she said, you know, I, I haven't I haven't done everything I could possibly do to get my foot in the door here. So she went out and she actually combed through social media to 
find pain points that real Airbnb customers had about the business. And she screenshotted the pain points that people had. She consolidated them and she kind of analyzed them to find two that, that really stood out. And those two were the lack of a keyword filter. So basically, if I wanted uh, to rent an apartment in Chicago for the night that had a hot tub and I could look right down into Wrigley, I don't think that's possible. But regardless, if I wanted that, I wouldn't be able to search for that specifically. I would basically have to search for listings in like Wrigleyville and then click on each individual one and see if it had a hot tub and the view. And that's not a great user experience because it requires a lot of effort on the user's end. So naturally, people were upset about that. The second piece was getting in touch with their customer service. Apparently, Airbnb's customer service is like notoriously bad. Kim came up with ideas for both of those. For the first, she went out and she found people and she asked them to go through this task of finding listings with specific criteria and ask them for their feedback and how they would improve it. And she took all of their feedback and their recommendations and she mocked it up into an actual flow of what it would look like within Airbnb's app. So that was one solution. And then the second was she went out and did a bunch of research on the benefits of live chat. And so basically having a little widget on your site that would allow people to interact with the site immediately um, and get the help they need immediately without a huge cost or overhead to Airbnb itself. And basically, she went out and she found all these benefits that showed that having live chat increased customer retention, increased satisfaction, increased revenue, all these metrics that any company wants to continue to improve. So what she did was she put together a deck where she basically teed up the she had screenshots from all these people on social media complaining about the thing. And then she went through and talked about the methodology of how she got the results. And then she showcased the solution. So that was about an eight slide deck. It wasn't anything crazy. It wasn't like professionally designed or anything. Anybody listening to this could have put it together. But then she sent it out to the same contact she had reached out to before. And she got a reply the next day. And she was in their office for an interview the next week. So that's a great, great example. Well, did she get the job, Austin? We, we got to get closure. She did. She did. Hooray! Absolutely. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Of course. Of course. I mean, how could you not hire somebody who's, who's doing that? I mean, then that's that's the whole point. So she went out and she found this tangible problem. She wasn't like, hey, I think that your customers are having this issue. She said, your customers are having this issue. Here's how you fix it. And I'm the person who has these kind of ideas and who will help you execute on that. And of course, I mean, they're, they're not, who's going to hire somebody who's just coming up with a resume and a cover letter, black and white ink, all of that over somebody who went out and did marketplace research, customer research, and came up with actual tangible value for the company. So that's the type of thing that we're talking about. And just to give one more example, that's a very different end of the spectrum. There was a guy named Tristan who he wanted a job at, at Foursquare. And this is about six, seven years ago when Foursquare was really, really booming. And um, they were releasing an ad product. So they, they had all these, all these advertisers currently on the platform. They were looking to grow. So Tristan saw that they had an opening on their sales team and he really wanted it. So instead of just applying online, he went out and he, he basically mapped, he made a map of all the companies that were currently advertising with Foursquare. And then he went out and created a list of companies that were sort of lookalike who matched the same criteria. And then he went and started reaching out to them and uh, he generated about 10 leads. So he, he got in touch with people, had conversations, positioned himself as a supporter of, of Foursquare. And then he sent an email to the CEO of Foursquare and he said, hey, uh, you guys have an opening on your sales team and I'm really, really interested in it. I didn't apply online, you know, I didn't do anything else, but I have 10 people 
at companies who are ready to advertise with you today. And I'm happy to give you their names and I'm happy to put you in touch with them. When can we meet? And the CEO replied to him and they onboarded those 10 companies. And Tristan got hired, not just as a regular salesperson, but actually as the director of sales. And yeah, that's another great example of thinking outside the box. He could have easily said somebody who's able to convince 10 people to try a product for a company they don't even work for has a good track record in sales ahead of time. So he could have easily said on his resume, you know, over retainer, you know, averaging 115% quota at my company, but then he'd sound exactly like every other salesperson applying for the job. But by actually going out there and sourcing leads, which is exactly what they're hiring this person to do, and then bringing them to the CEO, again, same story as Cam from Airbnb. Why would they hire anybody else? Because they know that this person can do exactly what they're asking for. Yeah, I, I, I like that because it, it's when you talk about value, which can be a nebulous word at times, it's it's so precise in terms of, okay, these are, are real companies who are, are quite likely to give us real money uh, real soon. So, so that's great. And then that also gets you thinking in terms of the value you're creating doesn't just have to be thoughts, ideas, input from, from users or customers. But it could it could be real precise in terms of of generating revenue. Like these are leads who might might buy from you right now, or, or slashing costs in terms of providing like actual vendors. It's like you know what I, I've spoken with three people who have experience in automating uh, manufacturing packaging lines, <laughs> and are can totally handle doing I don't know boxed dried macaroni. <laughs> Just inventing a totally new example, and are happy to chat. And so. That if you've already validated that that yes, sure enough, they're they're looking to to slash manufacturing costs, and there's a lot of waste showing up in uh, in packaging, and it's very manual to to figure out you know where where the problems are coming from and how to address them. Then then that could you know really resonate. And whether it's like wow, we've never heard of these companies before, and we should, or yeah, we've talked to to one of them, but we haven't uh, heard of the other two. Uh, you're bringing in new stuff that we hadn't even considered. You can only be perceived positively, you know, unless you you did a really shoddy job, <laughs> you know, in terms <laughs> yep. of this isn't a real problem that we're worried about. And this thing that you're proposing is completely far-fetched uh, and unworkable. You know, assuming that you've got a, a reasonable quality, uh, that's, uh, it, it's huge in terms of showing what you can do. Yep, absolutely. So uh, that's basically the overarching strategy there. And the best way that people can get started is to just start reaching out to people who are in a position to help them get hired. And I know that that can be somewhat of a daunting task to people who have never reached out cold before. I have plenty of resources on my site to, to help people with that. I have templates and scripts and all that. But the best thing I can recommend is just start with one person per day. You can even do one person a weekday. So just five, five emails a week. Just find somebody on LinkedIn. Um, you can look up their professional email using a tool like hunter.io or voila Norbert, B-O-I-L-A Norbert. You get their email, you just shoot them a note and you say, hey, I'm really impressed with your experience and I'd love to learn more about how you're, you were able to achieve and accomplish all the things that you have in your career. Can we talk more about it? Definitely, definitely probably go into a little bit more detail and personalization than that, but something along those lines and just start sending one email a day and I promise you, you will get, responses. And when you start getting those responses and you start having these conversations, everything else is going to kind of fall into place. So that's the best next step that I can recommend. And um, yeah, Pete, I really, really appreciate the opportunity and, and you having me on here.
Oh yeah, this is fun, definitely. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you found inspiring? Yes, it's not necessarily job search related, but um, it could be. But for me, something that's resonated and I've been trying to focus on is uh, that comparison is the thief of joy. I think that is a Teddy Roosevelt quote, but um, I don't know if you've run into this building your business, but it's very easy to go on, on LinkedIn or somebody else's blog and be like, man, they have so many more visitors than I do or so many more likes and they're, they're doing so much better. And, um, that's something that I really struggle with personally. So I, I have that quote written up on our chalkboard in our kitchen here. And I try, I'm trying my best to kind of abide by it every day and just focus on me. Mm-hmm. And how about a favorite study or experiment or a bit of research? Ooh, I can relate this one to the job search. Um, so interviews are, are very fascinating environments for me because I, I am a big psychology fan. So one of the things that I always recommend to people, um, I, I have two, I don't know if we have time, but the, the, the first one I'd recommend is um, basically in a series of events, people are most likely to remember the first thing, the first event and the last event. And so when we think about that in the context of interviews, um, interviews all sort of follow the same progression. There's the intro and the small talk kind of before you sit down at the table. Then you dive into the questions. Um, There's some softballs that maybe get into behavioral, maybe technical case study questions. And then towards the end of the interview, the interviewer asks you if you have any questions for them. And for the majority of interviewers out there, a lot of the answers are to the middle section are going to be the same. You know, tell me about a time you failed. Tell me about your greatest weakness. Tell me about a time you succeeded. All that stuff. The answers are all going to be sort of in the same ballpark. But if we think about that principle where people remember the first and last events in a series, those are, happen to be the two events in the interview that we actually have the most control over. So you can drive the small talk at the beginning of an interview. If you do some research on your interviewer, you kind of, you look them up on Google, you look them up on LinkedIn, maybe you find their Facebook profile, if they have a Twitter feed, and you try and find some piece of information that you can bring up at the beginning of the conversation that that sort of sparks more personal talk. So the formal barrier comes down. That's a great way to start the interview. And that's something that they're going to be likely to remember. And then at the very end, if you can ask great questions. So I also have an article on my site about, I just have a set of five questions. Um, I know a lot of the articles I read give you like a million questions out there and tell you like they're all great. But I, I did a bunch of research using a lot of those questions. And these are the five that I found to be the most effective. But if you ask great questions that kind of incite a conversation and are a little bit on the unique side versus what everybody else might be asking, that's also going to be very, very memorable. And doing both of these things will typically open up or give you some ammunition for a follow-up. So maybe that personal conversation, maybe this person tells you, Hey, I, I, you know, I'm getting married. I'm going on my honeymoon, or we have this vacation plan or, Hey, I just started brewing my own craft beer or meditating or whatever. All of that is great ammunition for you to then go and follow up, ask them, what beers have you brewed? Where can I find a recipe? You know, what, what's what I, I love that book that you mentioned, who's the author again. And then you can say, you can send them a follow-up and say, I read the book. My favorite point was X, Y, and Z, and I totally understand why why you said X about it. Um, so it really opens the door to continue the conversation and continue building the relationship. But that is a long-winded answer to your question, Pete. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good one, certainly. 
And, and how about a favorite book? That's a good one. I think my favorite book is probably recently, probably The Power of Habit. That's one that my wife and I both love. And I think habits are so critical to success in any capacity. They really drive. Once you read that book, you realize just how much habits drive most of your life. So if you can build the right ones, you're definitely going to set yourself up for success. Mm-hmm. And a favorite tool? My favorite tool would probably have to be one of the ones I mentioned before, um, which would be Hunter.io you know, it's or really Wallen yes. Norbert. Yeah, they were a total game changer to me. But since I already mentioned them, for people wondering what they are, they basically allow you to look up anyone's professional email address. But uh, a related tool that should go hand in hand, and I recommend to all my job seekers, is uh, it's called Yesware, Y-E-S-W-A-R-E. And it's essentially an email tracker. So um, it, it is a little bit creepy to be transparent, but it will allow you to basically see the activity on all the emails you send. So you can see when people open your email, how many times, how often, uh, where, when, and if they, if they engage with it. If there's a link in it, it'll tell you if they clicked on the link. It'll tell you what device they opened it on. It's pretty wild. But the reason it's so helpful is because when you're reaching out cold to a lot of these people, you need to understand that a random email from a total stranger is, is probably low on their priority list, no matter how badly they want to help you. So just because you don't get a response doesn't mean that the person doesn't want to help you or isn't interested. Uh, so I gauge interest using email tracker. If somebody opens my email multiple times, then to me, that is indicative that they're thinking about it. They're interested in it. They're just very, very busy. So I'm going to follow up five business days later. If they only open it once or they don't open it at all, then that means it's time to move on to the next person. So pairing using Hunter to find people's emails and then using the email tracker to gauge the the engagement on their end, those are two of the most powerful tools you can use for for finding strangers and, and reaching out to them and starting to build a relationship. And how about a favorite habit? I think my favorite habit, which I haven't done enough of recently, is is getting up early and working out. It doesn't have to be one of the things that I'm pretty much an all or nothing type of person. So I, I'm either like completely bought into something and, and probably investing too much time and energy into it, or I'm not doing it at all. And something that I realized recently was that even just going and running on the treadmill for 10 minutes makes a huge difference in my ability to focus and manage my emotions for the rest of the day. And then also getting up early. A lot of people ask me how I run my business while having a full-time job and getting up at five in the morning, five thirty in the morning, working out and then coming back. I still have two hours before work to write some blog posts or do some outreach or whatever it is that I need to do. So I think both of those combined are probably the thing that's had the biggest impact on on my life recently. And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? Definitely. I always lead with um, anybody's welcome to reach out and, and email me. I, I can't be the person to tell you to cold email strangers and then not be the guy that <laughs> replies. So uh, my email is austin at cultivatedculture.com. And, uh, and then if people want to, to take the next step kind of and dive into some deeper material, if people listening go to cultivatedculture.com forward slash awesome, there are two resources there. So first, I keep a lot of data on the strategies that I recommend to people. I don't recommend anything that I haven't tested out myself or with the audience. So I consolidated the five most effective strategies that I found from coaching thousands of people for the last few years. And uh, so those are available there. And then I also have a, uh, a course that I call Resume Revamp. 
it's my approach to writing an effective resume. Um, and hundreds and hundreds of people have used it to, to transform their resume and land jobs at the places we mentioned before, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, et cetera. Um, so again, that's cultivatedculture.com forward slash awesome. And, um, yes, please feel free to reach out to me if you guys have any questions at all. Oh, perfect. Well, awesome. This has been a lot of fun and thanks for doing what you're doing and keep it up. Thank you, Pete. Likewise, I, I'm a huge fan of the podcast. And uh, for everybody listening, if you haven't already, please go and, and leave a review for Pete because those, those are a big deal. Oh, thanks. No problem. So thanks to Austin for sharing those great bits of wisdom. And thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. I love hearing Austin's take about illustrating value up front and combine that with cold emails. And that combination has really opened up some of the most transparent formational opportunities and doors again and again and again. And it really just grabs the attention all the more when the subject line and the first words are about what they want and what they're after. You might just imagine if you got an email with a subject line that was, give me money. Like, no, I don't want to give you money as opposed to let me give you money. Like, no, interesting. What do you mean? <laughs> What's your catch? I'm skeptical, but I'm interested and curious. So that's the idea is your messaging saying, hey, here's something. Here's some value I can bring to you versus give me the thing I want. It makes all the difference in terms of capturing attention. In this case, capturing the job. So thanks to Austin for that. Again, the show notes transcript links to items we've referenced. It's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F392. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll hear from our next guest. It's Ari Meisel, and he is talking about how to automate and outsource and streamline life and get way ahead of things. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.